Hello and welcome to the Baseball Wisconsin podcast. I am your host, Tim Gosler. Well, we made it to the seventh inning, and we figured it was time to go grab our closer. So our first call in the bullpen was for Joe Nathan. But when we went down in the bullpen, we found one one better. Today we sit down with head baseball coach at Prescott High School, Jeff Ryan. Now, Coach Ryan, 2019 Hall of Fame inductee at WBCA at Prescott High. He has amassed 12 conference titles. He's reached the state tournament two times and won the state championship in 2012. Now, today's episode, Coach Ryan unpacks his history of Prescott, some things that make the program unique, and shares some tips and strategies he's learned along the way that he still holds true today. Now, before we get started, just want to remind you to subscribe and share. If you subscribe to the episodes, you'll get a notification when new ones come out, which is every other Tuesday. And also feel free to share on social media, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, whatever it may be. So other coaches across the state can hear from these great, great coaches that I'm lucky enough to sit down with. Without further ado, head baseball coach at Prescott High School, Jeff Ryan. Hey coach, how you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Pretty good is better than pretty bad. Absolutely. Well, hey, let's start off just in your background. So where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Uh, let's start there. Okay, I grew up uh, in a small town in northwestern Wisconsin, Frederick, Wisconsin, graduating class of 51. Um, lived out in the country, had uh, six brothers, four older brothers, and I have a, I have a twin brother, so six of us, uh, no sisters, and, uh, you know, just really had a had a really nice upbringing, had great parents. Uh, my mom was a school cook. My dad was a factory worker and a, uh, a janitor, school janitor. And, uh, you know, we, we were always outside, whether we were playing sports or trout fishing or uh, hunting, it didn't matter. Um, you know, where I grew up was kind of like a, a little bit of a paradise. We had about 140, 150 acres of land. We still go up there and hunt, which we will be doing this weekend. Um, <laughs> But no, I, I, I grew up in a small town and um, I, I have a great affinity for my, for my hometown and uh, have a lot of great memories. Um, when people ask me where I'm from, I still say I'm from Frederick, even though I've lived for over 30 years in Prescott, you know, Frederick will always be home. Awesome. Now, after high school, where to take you next? Well, I went to uh, UW-Eau Claire. Um, I, I, I <laughs> kind of a funny uh story a little bit. Uh, I grew up actually hating UW-Eau Claire. I had two older brothers who uh, went to UW-Superior, and uh, UW-Eau Claire was one of the universities that uh, people up in Superior did not like. They didn't like this, the Eau Claire feel and, and the Eau Claire um, vibe, so to speak. But, and I grew up not being a fan of UW-Eau Claire basketball because my brother's um, we're big Yellow Jacket basketball fans, and believe it or not, in the 1970s, Superior had some really good basketball teams uh, back when the old NAIA um, basketball was, was big in Wisconsin. There was no such thing as NCAA Division Three. But uh, truth be told, uh, after I graduated from high school, I ended up going to Eau Claire, and, uh, which was kind of funny. But uh, I loved it at Eau Claire. I was fortunate enough to play baseball at, at UW-Eau Claire, and had a great time, played for a great man by the name of Dan Langloss, um, who I still have a great, 
great amount of respect for one of the nicest gentlemen I've, I've ever come in contact with. And, uh, once I left Eau Claire, I came to Prescott, first interview, first job opportunity, and uh, I've never left. I've been here for 32 years. Wow. Now, tell us about your playing career. Give us a scouting report. What type of player were you? Okay. Well, um, again, growing up, um, it, it really, whatever, whatever sports season it was, was the sport that we played growing up. Um, and, you know, I liked all three of them, but baseball was always my favorite. I really liked basketball. Um, when I was in high school, um, I was fortunate enough to play, um, uh, play shortstop uh, at the varsity level. I know it's Frederick. I know it's not Waukesha. It's not uh, Janesville Craig or it's not Sun Prairie. But uh, I, I was able to uh, start as a freshman at shortstop when I played at Frederick. We had some really, really good baseball teams in Frederick. Um, my senior year, uh, out of the nine people that uh, started uh, for that little town, uh, five of us went on to play college baseball, which uh, is pretty good for such a small, small community. Um, but I played short in, uh, in high school and pitched a little bit when I was a senior. And then when I went to UW-Eau Claire, I, I didn't go out for baseball my first year. Uh, and that really, really angered my dad. My dad was really mad at me. Uh, and my dad asked me why I didn't go out. And I just said, well, I, I didn't think I was good enough. And, uh, you know, I look back and I always wonder why I thought that. Um, so I didn't go out my freshman year. So I hadn't played ball. I, you know, I played fast pitch softball, a little bit of that and stayed busy during the summer. And then my second year at UW-Eau Claire, I decided to go out to just shut my dad up. <laughs> he, he basically said, you better go out again. So I did. And again, I hadn't played baseball in a couple of years and I, I, I was fortunate enough uh, to make the team and uh, uh, played at UW Claire. And when I made the team, um, made the team as the second baseman, and the head coach at the time, Dan Langloss, asked me, you know, uh, what position uh, did you play in high school, or how much second base have you played in high school? I said, well, I've never played a game of second base in my life. And he says, well, you're going to learn how to play second base. So I got moved to second base and. Uh, I played a little bit of shortstop my last year, but I was primarily a second baseman at, at Eau Claire and played with some great players at UW-Claire, especially my second year. Um, but yeah, I really, really enjoyed my time there. And uh, um, after that, my playing career kind of ended. I, I did a little, played a little bit with the town team, but uh, I was focused uh, on coaching during the summer and helping out with summer programs while I was an assistant coach here in Prescott. So um, you know, I think when I played, at least in college, I was kind of mouthy. I was kind of a mouthy player. You know, I, I consider myself a pretty intense person, but uh, I, I probably would not put up with me uh, if I was to coach <laughs> me uh, when I played at UW-Eau Claire. So um, I, I, I kind of remember how I acted at times as a player, and I, I wouldn't put up with that today <laughs> as a coach. So, um, but again, um, I... That's from my upbringing, very, very uh, uh, competitive uh, upbringing. Uh, and that's what happens when you're, when you have six boys and, and those sisters, you know, you're going to compete, not just playing backyard baseball, but you're going to compete for that last piece of bread uh, on the kitchen table. So. Now it sounds like you got into education and, and you wanted to become a teacher. Now, how did that all unfold? Did you, you know, when you were a high school kid, did you know you wanted to, 
I know it sounds like your parents both worked in the school system. You know, how did that come to fruition? Yeah, you know, that's a, that, that's a good question. Uh, you know, as all of us, I think a lot of people who choose to go into education, they can point to a, a teacher here or a teacher there that they had growing up. And I certainly did. I had a couple of really, really good teachers in high school at Frederick. I, again, I really thought the school was great. Um, again, a smaller school. Um, there are good things and bad things, but again, I wouldn't trade my experience at Frederick High School uh, for anything. But an English teacher I had, June Fossum was her name, a uh, history teacher by the name of Phil Schneider, great, great teachers. Um, and, you know, it, it was just fun to watch them teach because you could tell that they really enjoyed what they were doing. And uh, um, also, there were my coaches that I had in high school that also had a big influence on me. But you know, when, when I graduated from Frederick, I thought about education, but the type of education I actually thought about going into was um, adult special education. My oldest brother um, had Down syndrome, and uh, he was the oldest of the six. And, uh, you know, I, I, I always tell people this, I've said this many, many times, that me as a person and my brothers, I think a lot of us, um, how we are as, as people, um, it was really defined by our relationship with our, with our oldest brother, Stuart. Um, and of course, having great parents. And when you have a, a brother with Down syndrome, I mean, you learn emotions like empathy that are extremely important. And you, you learn about compassion. And I remember um, <laughs> probably about 20 years ago, I went and saw a stand-up comedian one time who was talking about um, having a Down syndrome brother. And he, he, he was telling all these great stories about uh, growing up with his brother. And, uh, you know, we have so many great stories too um, uh, about my brother Stuart who passed away in 1995. He lived to be 45 years old, which was really incredible uh, because he did have significant health problems, but um, he did live to be 45 and we were thankful for that. But this comedian said, you know what? Uh, if everybody in the world had Down syndrome, uh, there would be no war. There would be no poverty. There'd be no crime. There'd be no homelessness. I thought, you know, that's true. And if anybody knows anybody, has a personal relationship with anybody who has Down syndrome, they would nod their head and say that that's true. So, you know, I think about him, and he was also the first home run hitter I ever, I ever knew. You know, people who was the first home run hitter you remember, yeah, I remember growing up Harmon Killebrew because we were Twins fans. Um, Killebrew and Oliva, but the first home run hitter I knew was my brother Stuart. And uh, when we would grow up and play ball in the backyard, there was there were very few times where um, he wouldn't get the big hit. My brother, older brothers John and Greg would pitch to us, and Stuart would come up and hit a home run off the barn, and we would just go crazy, of course, because the Twins had just beaten somebody, the Yankees or whatever. But he was the first home run hitter I ever knew was my brother, Stuart. Um, so, you know, I think about that, you know, I, I almost went into adult education. Then I took a speech class at UW-Eau Claire, had a great speech professor. And I met with this professor. She said, you know what, uh, I, I think you need to go into public education. You need to go into teaching. Um, so she was kind of the person that kind of pushed me into that. And then after my sophomore year, I decided, yeah, this is something that I, that I want to do. So that's a long story, but oh, uh, I got there. I got there eventually. <laughs> well, well one, of my, one of my questions is always like, 
the coach you are today for all, you know, all these days later is influenced by a ton of life experience, a ton of coaching experience and being an educator, talking about your brother, like how do you think those experiences have shaped you into the coach that you are today? Well, I, I think they're tremendously important. Um, you know, you know, I always talk about, you know, you want to be a good human being. I mean, that's what we always, we want to be a good human being. And I think that there are people that I have met over the years that I've, you know, have, have aspired to try to be like, you know, and I think of my brother, Stuart, and I think of my, my, my parents and my brothers, you know, the influence that they have on me as a person, you know, manifests itself uh, in my coaching too. Um, I think, uh, you know, my, my, how I am and how I coach sometimes might seem kind of uh, in, in conflict with one another because I am a pretty intense person. Um, but, uh, you know, I am kind of a softy too. I think my wife would tell you, would tell you that same thing with my son. Um, but uh, when you talk about influences, I, I've certainly had some coaches that I've had the opportunity to meet over the years that, you know, I've tried to impersonate and tried to be like, uh, and, uh, you know, you, you have people that, uh, um, yeah, just people you want to be like, like, you know, that person's really inspiring. That person does things the right way. That person's a remarkable human being. And what a good thing to be is to be known as being a good human being. It's a great segue. Cause I know it's like the sports talk radio question, right? Like you're Mount Rushmore, of, of people, but I think about it in regards to like coaching influences, like sure. few men or women, you know, people who've had the most influence on your coaching career, who are they? And then what did you learn from them? Well, first and foremost, um, the person that I think of right away is Gordy Gillespie. Um, unquestionably, um, you know, I, I was fortunate enough um, to get to know him pretty well. Um, we had a couple players from Prescott who uh, played for, um, Gordy at Rippon, Nick Johnson and Nick Thone, who were both all Americans at Rippon, were great, great players in high school, great players in college. And uh, whenever I went over to visit them, I always stayed at Gordy's house. Whenever I went to the state tournament, um, I stayed at Gordy's house. And there were times we'd stay up till two o'clock in the morning um, talking. And every conversation I had was just, just jaw-dropping his experiences and the thing, the people that he knew, the people that he met, um, you know, it's, it's just incredible to, to talk with someone who has not only had so many experiences, but also has had so much success. Um, and, you know, there's an old quote, you know, nothing, nothing great is ever achieved without enthusiasm. And the guy, the, the most enthusiastic person um, in, in the coaching realm that I've ever met. And I, I think of when he was inducted in the Wisconsin Baseball Coaches Hall of Fame over a decade ago, I remember during his induction speech, it was just incredible because when he got done with his speech, um, he spent the whole time talking about the coaches and the audience. It was like he, was, he wasn't even being inducted. It's like all of us who were in the audience, we were the ones who were being inducted in the Hall of Fame. It just was so saying, you guys do a great job. You know, you guys are so passionate. Uh, we're so fortunate to have people like you in Wisconsin baseball. Do you have any idea? The inf just on and on and on, just figuratively patting us on the back over and over again. It was like, 
and you know, who was inducted into the Hall of Fame here? Was it Gordy Gillespie or was it everybody else in the audience? And that, that's really, that was an incredible thing to hear, to have someone who, uh, again, understands the importance of, of uh, acknowledging others. He never talked about himself, too. Never. Always talked about others. I have great players. I have great players. I have great assistant coaches. And uh, I've, I've never met any coach who uh, was more humble uh, than him and more excitable and happy, always smiling and very intense, very intense at the same time. You can be both. You can be happy and, t and intense at the same time. And those who know Gordy Gillespie would know that uh, he certainly was, was that. Just a great man. Just a phenomenal, phenomenal man. Um, Steve Block, uh, who I was Steve Block's assistant for nine years before he left to become head coach of River Falls, Hall of Fame coach. Um, when I came to Prescott, um, I, I, when I first started coaching with him, coming from the situation I was in at Frederick uh, and then UW-Eau Claire, I came to Prescott and I, I, I could not believe uh, his, his practice planning. Uh, and I said to myself, this is, this is a college program. He's, he's coaching high school baseball. Like it's a college program. I mean, just a master tactician. Uh, and, and Steve was a good friend of mine, uh, was so good, so good at recreating game like situations in practice, just a master at it. And that's why Steve was so successful when he coached. And I, I, I was very, very fortunate to be able to learn under someone like him who was just, again, a master tactician, a great practice, practice planner, and someone who said, basically, you know, you have to try to recreate game-like situations in practice. And you got to put pressure on kids. And Steve did a lot of that. Um, and again, some people would say it was a lot easier to perform in games than it was to perform during practices with Steve Block. And I think there might be um, a little bit of truth to that. But Steve um, has been a great, um, a great, great uh, a part of, of me when it comes to baseball. He's a good friend. It was when he became the head coach at Ellsworth, Ellsworth and, and Prescott, um, just down the road, um, there were some very intense games between uh, the two of us, some great games. And that was, that was hard on me. That was kind of difficult, um, knowing that Steve is intense and he knows that I'm intense and I want to beat him. He wants to beat me, and we have to try to make sure we keep it between the lines. But there were times where I thought, man, this, uh, this relationship is kind of on the brink here a little bit because we were, we were both so intense uh, when we coached against each other. But uh, um, I, I'm glad that that uh, – that, uh, tempestuous sea is calm now. So, uh, you know, Steve and I are, are, are very, very good friends and I, I seek his counsel um, a lot. Um, and then one more guy, I would say Brian Doyle. I don't know if you've heard of Brian Doyle. Brian Doyle used to, was uh, kind of the unsung hero of the 1978 New York Yankees um, World Series championship team. Willie Randolph got hurt in 1978. Brian Doyle, who probably played about 140 games in the major leagues, um, was brought up and he took Willie Randolph's spot. Uh, and a lot of people thought that Brian Doyle should have been the MVP of that World Series. He had a great, great series. So just kind of a, um, 
just kind of a bookmark in New York history, but he helped them win a World Series and he won a World Series. But I say Brian Doyle because about, oh boy, this was in the early 90s. Brian Doyle spoke at the WBCA clinic and his, inf and his infield instruction, his philosophy, his fundamentals, I, I was just mesmerized by it. And uh, he was just a phenomenal teacher, a great teacher. And uh, it might be viewed by some as being an antiquated approach, but I still teach that Doyle method. And again, I'm one of those people that uh, just because something is new doesn't necessarily mean it fits your program or fits what you want to do. And we've had some success. We've had pretty good teams in Prescott, pretty good defensive teams. And much of that I owe to um, what we do with Brian Doyle. He was very, very good, very, very helpful um, providing advice. I had a chance to sit down with him and talk with him at the clinic and just his influence on our, our program defensively and the fundamental approach to playing good infield defense is, is tremendous. Yeah, those three people probably would, would, would be the ones that come to mind. And many things stand out to me. Back to, again, think about the, what makes, I think, baseball guys different is to have you guys in Ellsworth, a guy you worked for, like, to still be, to you to mention him in this environment and talk about your friendship and your relationship. You know, I, I don't think that happens in other sports. I, it's, it's just, those things get ugly. And, I, and it sounds like it, there was times in which you could have, but to, to still reflect on that and think, that's an overall positive experience for you, I think says a lot. And then the second thing that I really want to tack on to is with Doyle, like what, 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 I mean, I wasn't there. I, I don't, you know, I mean, sure. give, me, give me a snapshot into the, the Doyle infield plan. Okay. Now, and I, I absolutely positively guarantee, you know, the handful of people that are listening to this are going to say, boy, Ryan's off his rocker. You know, he, it's not 1990 anymore. It's 2020. Um, Doyle is all about his big thing was separation, 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 separation. You get a ground ball, get that ball out of your glove as quickly as possible. So what Doyle does, Doyle says, you never funnel. You don't funnel. You don't funnel. And he says, you don't alligator. You know, you don't heel to heel and you don't funnel. He said, that takes way too much time. It's, you know, Pinky to pinky or sandwich, it's halvesies. He says, you got to get that ball to your glove as quickly as possible. It, he says, you, and, and he basically said, you bring that ball into your body. He said, the guy's safe. You separate the guys out. He said that, and, and he talked about a five-foot difference. He said, proper separation, a five-foot difference. That's what his talk was. He talked about separation, separation, separation. So we do so many drills where we, you know, way out in front, it's all separate, 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 paddle, glove face open, separate, separate, separate. And I know that a lot of, a lot of coaches don't do that. You know, they talk about giving, you know, and they talk about, you know, protecting the face with the hand and that type of stuff. And, you know, it's about balance. And, um, you know, when you separate out in front and separate quick, um, you can have a tendency to be off balance, throwing off your front foot. But of course we practice the, the proper way to do that. But the big thing is with Doyle was separate early, separate, 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 and not just with infield, but of course, um, playing second base, um, turning the double play. It's all about paddling, 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 separate, separate, separate. And um, that just has always stuck with me and we've had success with it. So, um, but I've, you know, when I, <laughs> 
Well, I am going to say I went and I, I, I spoke at a, at a clinic in Georgia a few years ago, and that's what I talked about. I, I talked about proper separation. I knew that there were these guys in the audience that disagreed with me, and this, this coach, uh, a group of coaches from Utah, from Salt Lake City, came up to me and said, finally, finally, we find someone who doesn't funnel. Thank you. Finally. And I said, well, there aren't a lot of us left anymore. But uh, so, again, like I said, it works for, works for us. Uh, and and I and I I'm not the type of person who's closed off and won't consider other things, but I'm just not convinced that the way that we're doing it uh, isn't better than this. But again, another coach would say, "Well, this is the right way it works for me," and then I say, "Fantastic." So uh, um, yeah, that's always stuck with me. Well, that's it's interesting. So that's one of my later questions: is like, what what have you learned recently that's maybe challenged what you've done in the past? and maybe forced you to change thought process on something. It could be anything in the game, or maybe you found out, you know, we were teaching that wrong, or we've now flipped a 180 on that. Is there any other parts of the game that you've completely changed based on, on, on some, new, some new work you've been doing? You know, I, you know, I, I would say um, one of the things that I've done um, as, as a head coach, and I'm sure you know this too, and most coaches uh, understand that you can't be successful unless you have good assistant coaches. And, uh, you know, I have a really, really uh, a good uh, assistant coach who works with our pitchers, Brad Matzik, who was a very successful uh, high school player and played for um, um, Coach Lechner at Oshkosh, was on the national championship team with Jared Washburn. Uh, and uh, Brad just says, Brad Matzik just does a great job with their pitchers, you know, weighted balls and, and all the technology connected to um, release point and getting out in front and front side all those things that have just been new uh, in the realm of pitching, I would say um, for me, um, understanding that Brad, you know, knows the pitching and I understand it, but to basically give him uh, the power or not the power. Yeah. Yeah. Give him the, uh, the responsibility, the responsibility to, to teach pitching uh, in ways that have completely changed since I've been um, coaching. When we first started, you know, we talked about the front side, pulling your front side down and, you know, and all these strange things. But now it's all about release point and it's about a firm front side. Those are the things that I think we've really changed. And, and we've had success. You know, we haven't had many fireballers in, in Prescott, but we've had successful pitching staffs. And I think – um, focusing on those fundamental things that have changed, I would say more than any part of the game, it's pitching and the knowledge we have connected to pitching. It's something that you have to stay on top of because that's one thing where I have, and we as a staff have, have changed um, because man, the technology and uh, uh, the different spin rate and all that stuff that now is available uh, to coaches it's remarkable. And it, it takes work to stay on top of uh, those new technologies that uh, for the most part, we've experienced, our experience has been, they've been helpful. So, uh, um, you know, I think the one thing that I've been able to do um, over the last few years is to basically step back and let, you know, my assistant coaches do their thing, you know, and uh, um, I think it's just... really, really benefited us from pitching. 
on the tech side, are there things that you've purchased or is there certain tech tools that you use that you've maybe acquired recently or you've had for a while? No, you know, we usually, you've heard of Ron Wolferth. I'm guessing you've heard of him or one of the pitching gurus. I mean, we're always buying stuff. I don't know if that's tech stuff, but we're buying his equipment. You know, we use a lot of video. We, you know, everybody's using video and the kids like it too. The kids like to see, you know, what's my front side doing? You know, am I, am I going to, am I, am I throwing toward home plate? Am I flying open? Am I, you know, what's my direction like? Um, we, we use a lot of video and, and the kids like that. But the, the one thing that it's tough, it takes time to do that. It takes time to do that. And you have to, if you're going to video, you've got to use it because if you're just videotaping for the sake of videotaping and not sitting down with the kid and saying, okay, this is what we're seeing. This is what you can work on. Uh, then it's meaningless, but that's the one thing too. Um, practices, you know, the, the, Analysis of video is something that's really, really changed um, over the last, say, 10 years. Um, but we use, we use video. You know, we don't use any of the high-tech stuff that I know some people are using. But uh, kids like it, too. Kids like to see themselves. Yeah. Um, so that's on the pitching side. Anything on the hitting side or base running? Anything else that you guys have maybe changed recently to, to um, try some stuff out? I, you know, uh, not, re not really with hitting, you know, not really with hitting. Again, just a lot of video. Um, and uh, I know everybody gets fired up about the long ball, no launch angle and that type of stuff. I mean, we don't really teach that. I mean, we do a lot of video, you know, we talk about, you know, you know, I see when it comes to hitting, um, I, go, I go back to Gordy Gillespie. I go back to Gordy Gillespie, and you probably have seen this, this stupid, not stupid, seen this old hitting vest that players used to use, used to keep their front side closed and keep them come back so you have a nice short swing so you don't fly open with the front side. Um, when I was in college, you know, I went to UW-Eau Claire, and I really didn't know how to hit. Uh, and my, the coach – at UW Claire, Dan Langlaw said, here, try this vest on. I want you to try this. I want you to hit with this. And I did. And it turned me into a, a, a pretty good hitter. So I became a believer. Something that certainly had a, a positive impact on my performance was just something as simple as that vest. And, uh, and, I, and again, I know it's kind of an old, old way of thinking, but at Eau Claire, one of the things I would do, interestingly enough, before I'd go up and hit, to remind myself that I needed to stay, my front side needed to stay closed, and I need to be able to hit that inside pitch, before I go in the batter's box, when I left the on-deck circle, I would pinch my arm right here. I'd pinch it just to give myself a reminder that I needed to stay closed with this front side. Um, so, you know, as far as, you know, See ball, hit ball. I mean, yeah. you know, you've got it. You, you got to track the baseball and you can do that with film too. Uh, and that's pretty easy to see when a kid is flying open, a kid's not watching the ball. So as far as, you know, all the little ins and outs of hitting, um, you know, it's a real, it's a real complicated skill and it's a very difficult skill. Um, as with anything, when it comes to hitting, it's almost kind of a paralysis by analysis can be with anything, but, uh, you know, 
when it comes to hitting, not a lot of new technology stuff. Um, yeah. We we don't yeah. we throw we hit a lot of live, just live hitting, live hitting. Hardly any any machine hitting, you know. And I I still throw, so I said I wanted to keep on throwing until I was 55. So I didn't throw any pitches last spring. So hopefully I'll be able to throw when I'm 56. So, but we do a lot of hitting, a lot of swinging, like everybody else does. Well, hey, well, let's take it back into Prescott. So give us the scope okay. of baseball in your community, Little League all the way through the high school. How does, how does a kid get started in your community playing baseball? Well, um, you know, there's, there's T-ball. Like any community, there's a little T-ball. There's some Little League um, teams, I would say. Uh, typically, there's probably six or seven Little League teams. Um, and then there's the equivalent of uh, probably three or four 13, 14-year-old teams. Then there's a junior legion, if there's enough kids. And then there's a senior legion, of course, in the summer. Then there's the high school team. We have a C team and a JV team. So we have three teams at the high school level, which we're pretty proud of for a school our size. We're about 420 kids. Um, last year, our numbers were down. I'm kind of concerned about our numbers here. Um, we'll see what kind of an impact um, not playing last spring might have on us. But typically, we'd have anywhere from 40 to 50 kids out for baseball. Um, at the youth level, here's one of the things I think is really, really important, and it speaks to Steve Block's legacy. Uh, Steve was the head coach uh, when uh, Prescott won their first state championship in baseball in 94, and many of those players on that team, very, very good team, many of those players are now parents of kids, and uh, they are coaching in the community. So for me, it's, it's tremendous to have people who have come through Prescott that had success because the way Steve did things, the way I did things were a little bit different, but fundamentally a lot of similarities. In fact, the similarities far outnumber the differences. So very fortunate to have those now dads who came through a system where this is how the game is taught. These are the basics basic fundamentals of pitching, hitting, defense. And, you know, that, that's tremendous as a head coach to have that foundation already there. Um, and in Prescott, um, I've been fortunate enough during the summer where I've had uh, some coaches who are very, very good. Again, coaches who were dads of players who know the fundamentals, who know uh, – how Prescott baseball is supposed to be played. Um, so I, I've been very, very fortunate in Prescott to have, it's a good baseball town. Um, there's been a, a lot of people that have helped make Prescott a successful baseball community. And a lot of that uh, is directly connected to Steve Block and all the work that he did and all the excitement that he brought um, to, uh, to a, a sport that uh, was sort of languishing uh, for a while, but he kind of, it was amazing what he was able to do. And, uh, you know, I've, I've always think about, you know, his hard work and what he was able to do to put Prescott baseball on the map. And I, you know, I've benefited from that hard work. Yeah. I mean, your inner Gordy Gillespie is coming out, just servant leadership. Thank you. I mean, it's, it, it's fantastic. Now you said your high school program, typical year, you got 40 to 50 kids. So, do you guys typically just split the three teams? Do you guys usually need to cut? How do you kind of structure those three levels? 
Yeah, we don't cut. Um, we've, we've never cut. Um, you know, we always try to find a place for a kid to play. Um, we've had a lot of ninth graders that have played varsity. And uh, I think it's one of the things that uh, consistently you can see in, 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 in Prescott baseball that we've had a lot of ninth graders that have, have played at the varsity level. And I think that kind of excites kids. You know, an eighth grader coming into Prescott knowing that there is a chance that uh, they could put on that varsity uniform, which is a great thing. Um, so, yeah, we have three levels. And sometimes, like I said, our, our numbers, <laughs> 50 kids in a gym, that can be kind of challenging sometimes. But uh, um, from 40 to 50 kids, and uh, we're able to um, you know, play a full varsity schedule and a full JV schedule. It's, it's tougher for us to find C-team games because not a lot of schools in our conference uh, have a third team. So we spend a lot of time going across the river playing the Minnesota schools to try to fill up that schedule for, for the, the C team kids. So, uh, yeah, we, the, the fields get a workout uh, in, uh, in Prescott. So, uh, um, yeah, I, I'm hoping, like I said, I, I hope we can do the same thing. I'm, I'm kind of worried about coming into the spring to see what kind of numbers we're going to have. Now, one of my other – I like to ask coaches, how do you structure your tryouts? You know, I mean, I know this, this next year's different with COVID, you know, COVID restrictions and contact days and stuff, but a typical year, you know, we got that Monday after pitchers and catchers. Do you, do you usually run them through a showcase type? Do you run like a typical practice? Do you guys try to inner squad? What do those days look like for you guys? Well, you know, early on, of course, we're sharing gym space. We have to share gym space with the softball team sometimes with the track team, sometimes with the golf team. I mean, we, we're, we're looking for gym space a lot of times if the weather is not cooperating. Um, and what we do early on, um, say we have 13, 14, 15, or 16 ninth graders that are, that are going off for baseball, um, we will have every coach, um, every high school coach, and I – I'm lucky to have two paid assistants and typically about two other volunteers, um, former players that have, that have volunteered um, over the years. And those incoming ninth graders, one of the things we, I never want to do is have those ninth graders think that they're, ah, they're ninth graders. Oh, yeah, they're just uh, an opportunity for the program to make some money during fundraising. Um, you know, we want to give those ninth graders, um, you know, their due. So, um, all the coaches will work with the ninth graders for the first uh, uh, first 10 days, first 10 practices where um, we'll have them for an hour and 45 minutes. They get our absolute complete attention, all the coaches. And I think they deserve that. And I think that helps. That's helped us keep kids out for baseball that, uh, you know, we're not going to, you know, your ninth graders here go up on the JV field and, you know, that's, that's your field. I'm not going to bother you to, for the rest of the year or do whatever you want to do. No, this is, uh, you're important here and uh, you're going to get our best. Um, so what we do is we'll have practice with them for an hour and a half. And then after they're done, then we'll practice with an hour for an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes with the 10th, 11th and 12th graders. But we have, we concentrate on those ninth graders. And I've gotten really good feedback from people saying that, that is, that's a good message to send. And, I, and, I, and I'm, I'm proud that we do that. And uh, I think those ninth graders deserve it. And again, we want them to get excited. We want them to stay out. 
because baseball, like football, really becomes a numbers game. You know, I, I've said that, you know, at a school our size, there were some years where we only had two or three kids out for baseball in a year. Um, now, you can survive that for one year, but back-to-back -back years like that are tough. But uh, if you can get, I, I've said this, if you consistently can get nine, ten, ten kids out, at least at our school, uh, out for baseball uh, in each class, you're, you're going to be successful. You're, you're going to have success. So we want those kids to stay out. We want them to feel wanted. And uh, we, we think we do a pretty good job of doing that. It's, it sounds like it. I mean, it's, it's a concerted effort systematically to get all you guys, you know, hands on those guys, you know, figuratively hands on those guys and, and make them feel important to the program. And, you know, I think that goes a long way with a 14, 15 year old and, and their parents and, and everything else coming into your program. So, I mean, obviously at some point you split up into your three teams and then you, you know, you're the varsity coach as well. So, you know, you get to varsity time. Like, are there any things unique about your program? Anything unique about your varsity team that you guys do that maybe you think is, I don't want to say gives you an edge, but it makes it unique to Prescott baseball. Well, um, I think, uh, you know, I, I think we have a pretty good reputation in Prescott and, uh, so let me, so let me ask you, what, what, what is the reputation? If you, had to, if you had to put your finger well, out, what is the reputation okay. of baseball? Okay. Um, first of all, like many other programs, um, we write a mission statement. We have goals. The kids do that. I have, I'm not involved with that. They do a mission and a goals. They do goals. Um, and, of course, they identify team goals, and then they themselves – identify individual goals. And one of the things you have to do, of course, when you identify those goals, you have to revisit those goals. You don't just create them on March 17th and then look at them in June. You have to take a look at those goals to see if they're realistic. I mean, um, not just team-wise, but individually. So we have, to, we have to identify those goals. But one of the things always, um, I tell the student, uh, students, well, they are students too. I tell the players, one of the things that uh, you, you, you must do um, is you are going to be a great ambassador. You are going to be a great ambassador for a community. Um, that cannot be a goal. That's going to be understood. That's something that you have to do. Um, you know, we – uniforms always tucked in. We never – you never wear a Prescott baseball cap backwards never never and even when i see during the summer when it's not during baseball season um i'll see baseball players they'll point at their hat and say look i got it on right i'm wearing it the right so you never they never wear a prescott baseball cap backwards um we whenever we speak with umpires and some people think this is stupid but it's important um it's mr umpire we don't say blue Hey, Blue. Hey, Blue. It's Mr. Umpire. Thank you, Mr. Umpire. Mr. Umpire. Mr. Umpire, could you please move, please? Mr. Umpire. It's always Mr. Umpire. Mr. Umpire. They get 11 seconds to get into the dugout. That center fielder better be in the dugout by 11 seconds. That doesn't mean that that kid at first base walks into the dugout. You sprint into the dugout. Um, you're not going to showboat. You're not going to pound your fist. We're not going to do um, 
you know, this, uh, I point at you, you point at me, we run at each other, we do a chest bump. Um, we just don't, I, I will not allow that. I don't like that. I know that that's old school, but uh, I want our, our players, I think, play with a quiet intensity. Um, there's nobody um, that is more competitive than Prescott baseball players. And you can be competitive without screaming and yelling and acting like an idiot in the dugout, which unfortunately I see too much of today. But uh, um, we, we are going to win. We're going to win with class. We're going to learn how to shake hands. We are going to uh, treat our opponent with respect. Uh, and we're, and, and, and uh, no one's going to be better prepared uh, than, than Prescott baseball players. That dugout when we leave is going to be cleaner than when we got there. Um, when we walk into the bus, uh, we, our jerseys are not, are not untucked. We walk into the bus the same way we walked out with our uniforms on, our hats on straight. Um, please and thank you, the bus driver. I think we have a reputation of really being a classy baseball team. Um, and again, I, I insist on that. And I think the students like that. We go to restaurants afterwards. It's please and thank you. Um, and it's really, really great when we've stopped at burger joints after games. And it really makes me proud without me saying it, there'll be uh, maybe a couple that'll walk in after us and the players will step back and say, hey, you go in front of us, you go in front of us. You're not gonna stand behind a bunch of 17, 18 year old kids. You can go to the front of the line in front of us. And then as we leave the restaurant, thank you, thank you. I, I always tell kids, you know, you're wearing a Prescott baseball uh, uniform or Prescott baseball hat, you're in Waukesha. You go into that gas station in Waukesha, Menominee Falls, and that person in that gas station uh, sees you wearing a Prescott baseball shirt or Prescott baseball hat. It might be the only time that person from Menominee Falls ever meets anybody from Prescott. The only time. So what type of an interaction do you want that person to have with that person from Prescott? What do you want them to say when you walk out of that gas station? You want that attendant? I don't care if the attendant is 17 or 70 years old. You want them to say, boy, that's a really nice young man that walked. God, that kid was really polite. Those kids are from Prescott. Wow, that's, you know, I was really impressed. And that, that's what we're trying to do. And I always say this, the winning just happens. It just happens. We're going to prepare um, harder than, as, as hard as we can, but the winning just happens. But what type of human beings are, are, are we, are we becoming, you know? Um, and I always say this, you want, you want to be an easy team to root for. And I, I've pounded this home time and time and time again to groups that I've spoken with. And I always say that if you're at a tournament game, okay, you've got 500 people in the stands. You've got Prescott versus Ellsworth. You've got one-third of the crowd is rooting for Ellsworth because they're from Ellsworth. You've got one-third of the crowd that's rooting for Prescott because they're from Prescott and you've got one third of the crowd that's there just to watch baseball they just like watching baseball and I always tell the kids you want that one third to start rooting for you and how do you do that hustling off the field um, playing the game hard uh, treating people with respect 
that you want to be an easy team to root for, whether win or lose. Um, that's what you're trying to do. And I like to think that, you know, um, we are, we are a pretty easy team to root for. Um, maybe some people <laughs> would disagree, um, but you know, we never share, we never show up our opponents and I just pound that. I, I just pound that home. You, you can't do that. You can't do that. That's not, that, that's not being a good human being. You know, again, you can still play with intensity. I want to make that perfectly clear. You can be a good human being and you can play the game respectfully without pounding your chest. And you can play with just as much intensity as anybody who does pound their chest after they get a base hit every time. So, um, you know, and I, uh, yeah, you, you could probably tell I, I get pretty excited about, about that stuff. I just, it's something that's really, really important to me. Um, you know, you want to be a, an easy team to root for. And I think if you act those ways, that'll happen. I mean, that's, when I asked you that question, I didn't know what I was going to get. And I, for you to be able to define it both in practice and in theory and tangible and intangible things, it just says a lot. I mean, it's not just something that you said you talk about March 17th and then, you know, in June you do it. I mean, that's, that's just living it. It's absolutely living it. The other thing I want to ask you is one of the few things I know about you in Prescott baseball is your post-game speeches. <laughs> so, 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 so tell who us. Told how, you, who told you about that? Who told, I, I, does Scott tell you about that or, or Greg? <laughs> others invited, yeah. Okay. I just know they're unique. Um, also, yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> the, I hey, I think they're great. I and uh, this is kind of funny. It's it's kind of a point of contention among my assistant. I still want to know who who told you about that or how you heard was, about it. It was more of what makes Prescott baseball unique, and of the many things. Oh, okay. So, it was ask him so, about his post game speeches. <laughs> okay. It was not that they liked it or disliked it. It was just, it was different. Sure, sure. All right. Um, well, and, and this was about, uh, oh, this was at a clinic at the Wisconsin Baseball Clinic probably about 10 years ago. No, longer than that. Holy cow. I keep forgetting how old I am. Probably about 15 years. Um, and uh, this, this coach, and he was a high school coach, and he said, how many people have uh, ever been asked this question um, or, or he said, think about your playing days. Uh, you go home after a basketball game or after a football game or after a baseball game, you walk in and mom or dad, and this guy said, usually dad would say, what did the coach say after the game? what did the coach say? And he said, I remember that. And I thought, Hmm, you know what? I'm going to let mom and dad hear what coach says after a game. So I thought, God, that's kind of a cool idea, kind of a neat idea. So after each game, win or lose, uh, the players all come out and they usually sit between uh, home plate and the dugout, whatever dugout is. We sit down near the fence and uh, we have post-game comments and parents and spectators will come up to the fence and they'll listen and they can hear. I'm a completely open book. Now my assistant coach, and he's great, Brad Matzik, he hates that. He does not like that. Um, my other assistant coach, he likes it, but my Brad does not like it. And I'm like, no, you know, I'm an open book. So I will say, um, win or lose, um, 
what I say. And again, I, I, I'm not hiding anything. And I've told people this. Some people said, well, after everybody leaves and you probably mute the, with the team again and say something. No, uh-uh. no, I don't. Um, what I say after a game, win or lose, is what I say after a game. And uh, it's kind of fun, I think, when parents come up and they want to hear what Coach Ryan has to say. It's also an opportunity for me after a win, I give away game balls. Game balls are fun too. Um, usually anywhere from two to four. And, uh, you know, I'll have the four baseball game balls and I'll uh, announce who got them. And we'll say a little bit about them. It's fun to do that. And what's really, really cool then when you go to graduations and stuff and they have these balls um, in their trophy cases and they have their name when they got it, and what they did. And that's really cool. That's why you do it for those keepsakes. But yeah, those speeches are, and, you know, another thing that they're, that they're good, I think it, it kind of, I've gotten used to it now, but it, it, it is a way to self-police your commentary. You know, you have to try to uh, find a way to be critical without being too harsh. Uh, but I certainly criticize, and, and I will talk about maybe a missed sign or something that we needed to do better. Um, but I think, uh, you, you temper your tone, I think, after a loss especially. But I think it's been a, a good thing. I, I think it's been a, a good way to, again, demonstrate to parents that, again, I have nothing to hide. I'm an open book. And uh, instead of you asking, you know, Billy, what coach said after the game, come on up. You can hear uh, what Coach Ryan has to say after a game. And I, I kind of like that. It, it's kind of a neat thing. I I get so many questions about it because I think it's awesome. I think it's a great idea. So how, you, how, have you been doing it for 15 years? Like the, 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 yeah, about 15, about 15 right. years. Yep. So do what percentage of fan or what percentage of parents come to these meetings? Do all of them? Is it just what you do now that everybody knows it? Yeah, everybody knows I'm going to do it. Everybody knows. And they'll home games, of course, there's more fans there uh, than away games, but uh, um I would say typically sometimes are anywhere from five to five to 25 to 30 people that will come and, you know, grab on the fence and, and, and I don't whisper. I mean, they can hear I'm loud enough anyway, but uh, no, it's uh, yeah. I, again, I, it's, it's fun. I like doing it. Like I said, Brad Matzik, I let Brad Matzik start and then any of my assistant coaches, if they want to chime in, but I get the last word of course, but mm -hmm. Brad always says, God, I hate, do I hate this. I hate this. Uh, and that's okay. But, uh, you know, if I ever, whenever I quit coaching, uh, my guess is, um, and, and maybe he won't, but Brad probably won't do that anymore. If Brad is a head coach, whoever the head coach is, but I don't begrudge anybody who, who doesn't. I know a lot of coaches like to say that's time after games. That's our time. That's the team's time. That's when we go out to center field and that's when we go down the line. That's just our time. And I respect that. And I understand that. Um, but, Again, like I said, I'm an open book. I don't have anything to hide. So well, not that any coaches do. Not that any coaches do. All right. Well, I mean, for like, I mean, you hit a lot of things. Well, for 15 years, I mean, you guys have had a pretty good run. So I think, I think there's a reason why you kept doing it. I mean, for a lot of reasons. I mean, winning helps. But, you know, I mean, there's a lot of reasons you do it. But also, I think what you touched on is, that stood out to me, was you, you temper what you say, right? Because you know, as a leader, as a coach, as a teacher, that every word matters, you know, words, oh. words matter. And I mean, I can think about things that were said to me as an athlete that I will never forget. 
And I, I, I will sure. forget how they made me feel at that time, both positively and negatively. And to know that we now carry that weight, like you said, really tempers the words you choose, not because you're hiding anything, but because you know the power of your language. Sure. Yeah, and I agree 100%. And again, like I said, um, yeah, because as you said, um, you know, we can interpret words any way we want. Uh, and one person might interpret uh, this statement as being harsh. Another person might say, well, no, he's just being sarcastic or he's just being funny. Uh, and that, that's, it's, you can't really do that in that situation. Now, a one-on-one -on -one situation with just the team, maybe you can. But when you're speaking uh, in a situation like that, um, you know, you're talking to the team collectively. And you're, again, identifying some kids if you win a game uh, with getting game balls. But um, even though they're the parents, they really don't know the nuances. They don't really know uh, the chemistry and the makeup of the team. And, you know, that 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 game-like or that uh, teammate banter that goes on a lot of times goes over the heads of parents. So you have to try to make sure that your comments are that they can fit under that big tent, you know, and uh, and it's 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 always interesting because uh, you know my wife is here in the room and and she'll listen to what I um, what I say and I'll ask her from time to time um, what she thought or um, and it's interesting to hear what people on the other side of the fence think. So uh, um, yeah, I I think it's been a good thing. You know, it it causes me to again, watch my tone, police my words, and uh, understand that these are just young men that, uh, you know, I, in the end are doing their best, you know, and uh, we have to make sure that we don't do anything that, uh, you know, causes them some, some angst. And that's, that's, I want to find out in like July or August after this year, someone's going to listen to this and they're going to say, you know what, I'm doing it. I'm going to, I'm going to do it one time or they're going to do it this season. And I want to get a message from that guy, that coach. That does it, and we're going to laugh about it. Cause I, I think that's, I get to talk about something that makes your program unique. I mean, that absolutely is unique. And there's a reason you've been doing it for 15 years. What stands out to me is you've talked a lot about things you've learned over the years. That leads me like kind of to my last couple questions here, but like, what do you know now 30 plus years into coaching that you wish you knew when you got started, that kid come out of Eau Claire who first got started, what do you wish you knew then that you know now? Um, well, um, I think kids, kids want, just like students, baseball players uh, like rules. They like order. They like discipline. Uh, but they want those rules to be fair. They want those rules to be consistent. Um, it shouldn't matter um, who's breaking a rule. Um, the consequences need to be the same. And that's all students want. All players want. They want consistency. And I think sometimes as a young coach, um, that, that was something that was lacking in, in my approach, not understanding that, you know, the last kid on the bench um, sees that there might be a different set of rules 
for other kids. And it just can't be that way. And I would argue the kid who's batting third and the starting shortstop, he understands what that kid on the end of the bench thinks. He also wants the rules to be the same. Um, and I think being consistent and consistent in how you communicate, not just with players, but with parents, um, that's something I really, really work hard at is being consistent in my communication um, with parents. It was something that was, uh, I would say early on, I, I wasn't very good at that. Uh, and I think that speaks to the whole notion that I have all the answers and I don't need help, leave me alone type thing. Um, and I think over the last, uh, I would say 10, 15 years, I've come to rely on my assistant coaches more. And, you know, playing baseball is supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be fun. And I don't know if you've, you've seen, I got to be careful I say this, but I, I've written a few articles for the Wisconsin Sports Network. I don't know if you've taken a look at some of the articles that I've written. I, I wrote an article where uh, um, I interviewed three veteran officials, um, three guys who've been you know, refereeing, officiating, umpiring for three decades. And this one gentleman who I have a lot of respect for, Dan Hoffman, he said to me, he said, you know, one of the things I've noticed in high school sports over the last 10 years, he said, kids don't smile as much as they used to when they're playing. And he said, how sad is that? I said, you know what? That is really sad. I think um, there's always room for levity. Again, I'm a very intense person, but there is always room for levity. And I think when I was first starting believing that if a kid's laughing, it means he's not thinking about the game. You got to be thinking about the game. Where's your head? Come on, you gotta. You know, there's nothing wrong with that, <clears throat> and I think that's something that I've come to realize. It, it playing a sport, playing a high school sport, is supposed to be fun, and you gotta allow the kids to have fun. So um, that's certainly something that I um, would would have done differently. Is to you know what the kids. They're coming to practice because they want to play. They want to play. It's about playing. They want to play a sport. And when you're playing, you're supposed to be happy. You're supposed to smile. And, uh, you know, I, I think there's more of that now uh, in Prescott baseball than when I first was coaching. Um, so, you know, I, 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 I think about what he said a lot, and I thought that that was very sad. That's a sad state of affairs when – you have a, a, an official who's been refing for almost 40 years saying that, you know, kids don't smile as much as they used to anymore. Um, and that, that really, that really kind of stuck with me when I heard that. Uh, it's supposed to be fun. And uh, I think sometimes we can do things to make it not as fun as it should be. And uh, I think I always, I have to remember that. I have to remember that now um, as well as when I did when I was younger. Another thing I, I think, uh, and, and it speaks to ego. When you first start coaching, again, you have a tendency to believe that you have all the answers. Um, you've got to be willing to ask for help because there's so many people that are willing to help. You know, I, I think about not just people like Steve Block, but Mark Fuller, you know, Marty Paulson, 
from Fond du Lac, Don Williams, a legendary coach from Hortonville, people over the years that have, that I have, um, I mean, those resources are out there. And I think there's kind of a little bit of a, a belief that asking for help is a sign of weakness. It's kind of like the, before GPS, it's kind of like the guy who, who got lost in the cities. and asking for directions. Um, you know, sometimes we have to ask for directions. And, and, I, and I think uh, as a younger coach, I think I, I, I would have asked for more help, more help than, um, than just Steve Block. I mean, there's other people out there that I could get help from. Uh, so um, that's one thing I think I would have done differently too, is um, sought the advice of more people. Oh, well, thanks for that. I mean, it kind of the perfect segue to my last question. You as a learner, I mean, you've talked about going to clinics, talk about conversations with other coaches. Um, how do you learn better? What, what, what are you, what are you learning these days? Are you into, uh, is there a book you'd recommend? Is there a podcast you listen to? Are there ABC videos you watch? Like how do you get your fix as a continuous learner? You know, um, whether it's you coach or coach Featherston or, or, uh, You know, Coach Holler, um, any of the successful coaches in Wisconsin, any any coach in Wisconsin who cares about baseball, um, always teaches the fundamentals. How they teach it differs from program to program, but they're going to drill, 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 and they're going to work hard at it, and they're going to be successful. So I always say that all coaches who care about the sport, they're going to focus on those fundamentals. They're going to focus on those things that they believe enable their clubs or their players to be successful. Everybody does that. So I've always believed then, okay, um, all things being equal, then what is the difference? Because you're teaching fundamentals. I'm teaching fundamentals. Coaches around the state are teaching fundamentals. So what is the difference? Well, the difference is between the years, um, the mental part of the game. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of Jeff Jansen. Um, and this, I, <laughs> I've used so much of his stuff, the commitment continuum, um, just tremendous, tremendous stuff, the stuff between the ears. Um, I, I can't get enough of Jeff Jansen. I can't read enough of his stuff. I think I've got every book that he's written and we use a lot of his stuff. Um, another person. Can I pause right there? Now the Jeff Jansen curriculum, let's call it. How do you input that in your program? Do you do, do you meet your classroom? Do you do it, uh, pre-practice? Like, how do you systematically put that into your, to your program? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Again, it takes time, like anything, and you've got to be committed to it. It's not just something, here, fill up this worksheet, then we'll look at it, you know, the end of June. Um, but, yeah, we have, we have classroom time. That, you know, the great thing about spring break, it's one of the things that we will, we will use during our contact time. It's going to be what we'll do during spring break here is uh, we'll start working on that working on some of the psychology uh, of, of the work that Jeff Jansen has done. So um, we'll probably spend, oh boy, I, I would say a good, we'll probably spend eight hours, eight hours working on that. Well, we'll do classroom, we'll do discussion. And that's part of our mission statement work too. But uh, um, again, just, 
just reading Jeff Jansen's book isn't enough. I mean, you have to implement and you've got a plan to implement and the players have to know that you're serious about this stuff because if the players don't see that you're serious, they're not going to take it serious, seriously. Um, so I, I wanted to mention someone else too that is just, I think, a tremendous teacher of the mental game is uh, Mike D, Illinois Chicago head coach. Just another person who I could listen to hours on end um, about game preparation, mental approach, um, you know, the importance of uh, preparing to pitch uh, before every game. Uh, and he talks about that too. He says, everybody who cares about the sport is going to teach the fundamentals. And he always, and I'm stealing a line from him. He says, okay, what is the difference? It's the mental part of the game. Because we've had players, we've had teams, and I'll use the 2012 team, you know, you know, they won a state championship. And that, that team in 2012, there were no, I mean, there were some good baseball players, but we didn't have anybody who threw 80, over 80 miles per hour. We didn't have any, you know, six foot four left-handed hitting power guys. We just didn't have it, but we had kids that were really, really mentally tough and were great at preparing just a quiet intensity, something, you know, I, I think about any, the teams I've coached over the years that that team just basically coached themselves, their, their game preparation and using the stuff that Jansen talked about was just, I mean, it, it worked. Now, of course, they were good baseball players too, but they understood the importance of the proper mental approach to, to playing the game. And because we as a coaching staff put so much emphasis on that, they, they buy into it. So I always say that the difference is between the ears. Uh, and I, I can't get enough. Brian Kane is another one. He's another person uh, whose work that, I, that we've used. Um, but I, if I was to pick one in particular that we've used, a lot of his stuff, it's Jansen. Uh, it's great stuff. Great, great stuff. Well, hey, my last question for you, Coach, is um, – I don't know. What else you got? What else you got in your pockets to empty out? Like, what, what else, what other advice could you give us to kind of set us on a better path? Oh, let's see. Well, um, what'd you say? Oh, yes. <laughs> play, play more than one sport. Um, at, at our school, um, sadly, you know, I grew up in a small town, 51 kids in my graduating class. I would say there probably were 20 kids, 20, 25 kids. So almost half the class played three sports. Everybody played three sports. Now, if they didn't play basketball, they wrestled. Um, and, and sadly, uh, in our small town, and again, um, it's twice as big as the town that I grew up in, but in our 420 students, um, specialization is starting to rear its ugly head. And I, and I re I think it is really ugly. Um, there is this quiet competition for athletes. Um, and, and I think it's, it's, I think it's devastating smaller communities. Uh, and, uh, you know, don't get me started on some of the, you know, some of the other sports. I'm not going to mention the AAU, but, um, Specialization, I think, is really killing small towns. Uh, and I would say especially really killing um, spring sports. 
Um, so my wish is that kids and parents and coaches would, would really encourage kids if they have the ability to, and that's one of the great things about living in and going to a small school to participate in multiple sports, you know, maybe not three sports, but at least two. Um, it's just sad when you have kids, at least at our school, who are identified as, and everyone knows are among the best athletes, if not the best athlete in the school, yet they only play one sport. And I, I just think they're really missing out on something. Um, so that, that's, that's the one thing that I wish was different. Um, you know, I hate to go back to Wisconsin Sports Network. I wrote a, I wrote a column about this, too, uh, called There Are No Sports Seasons Anymore. You know, there's no such thing as a sports season. And, it, you know, again, maybe it's my Norman Rockwell uh, approach to athletics uh, and, and to opine for the old days, not recognizing that those days will never return. But I can, I can still hope. But uh, I, I just wish uh, that kids would participate in multiple things. I just think it's, it's good to do that, and it's healthy uh, academically and athletically. You know, as a young man, you're only 17, 18 years old once. Pretty soon you're going to be 55 years old, and you're starting to get AARP mail. Um, that started happening to me. Like every other day I'm getting something from AARP. So um, anyway, uh, it goes fast, and I, I just wish kids realized that. Well, there it is. Head baseball coach at Prescott High School, Jeff Ryan. Now, I told you we'd bring our closer in. He wouldn't disappoint. He comes in, he shoves, he fills the zone up, he competes, and he shuts it down for us. Now, this is going to bring us to the end of the first game. We went through seven innings, seven episodes, seven of the best coaches the state of Wisconsin has to offer, current Hall of Famers, future Hall of Famers, in a group of guys, I'm just very fortunate, carved out time to sit down with me and, and hopefully you're able to tune into all of them. As always, um, if you have not, they're available on YouTube. They're available on anywhere where podcasts are free. And we hope that you join us for our next game because leading off the second game for us in the first inning is your ultimate scrappy leadoff hitter. High energy guy, nothing but passion, coming out of the third base coaching box. Going to give you a tough AB every single time. Until then, have a great rest of your day. And we appreciate the support.